Um, so if you uh, need a copy, Eli, if you want to be so gracious, we've got uh, some copies. We're starting the book of Judges, but we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is actually where we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I put a lot of notes on the paper so you don't have to feverishly copy. You good, Josh? All right. You don't have to feverishly copy things, but 2 Corinthians 1 and... Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians 1, but we're going to jump into Judges in a little bit. I'm just going to get started on it. Maybe do like the fir- do an overview and jump into maybe the first six chapters a little bit. There's some good stuff there. Um, ju- Judges is a book of failure. Now, we just, read a, we just finished studying a great book yesterday, uh, last week, the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book of victory. Joshua is a book of getting into the promised land with your... Jeshua, your Jesus, but Judges is a sad book. Not a lot of people write or preach about Judges because it's so, oh man, it's twisted. I mean, especially those last four chapters, it is just absolute anarchy. And it just shows you how far the people of God can fall when they drop the battle plan and forget the mission. So what are some vital statistics? They're right there on your, on your, on your sheet there. 21 chapters, 618 verses. 18,966 words. It covers approximately, depending on who you read, I saw a bunch of different dates, about the first two to 300 years of them being in the promised land, about 1425 B.C. to 1200 B.C. Some people say 1100 something B.C. You guys can all fight about that, but you know, it's, uh, it's anybody's guess and anybody who tells you they're lying. But it's those first few hundred years that Israel has now arrived into the promised land. And uh, the author is probably, possibly Samuel. There's some evidence for that. There's also, it could be some other people. So I'm definitely not dying on that hill. But the real key words to remember about the book of Joshua are really uh, compromise and confusion. Because when you compromise God's plan and you compromise God's battle plan and God's formula for success, you end up in confusion. What should be victory ends up failure. What should be dependence on God and blessing ends up being anarchy when you forsake the Lord. Because Joshua showed us what does God do when you obey him. You know what he does? He blesses you. It's that simple. When you obey him, he blesses you and he gives you victory into the promised land. Judges is the counterpart to that. Because Judges shows you what does God do when you disobey him, when you forsake him. And the result is the opposite. It's cursing in this life. It's failure in this life. And that's the great theme. It's indicated on your sheet. The great theme of the book of Judges is the failure of man. The law of human collapse. That unless God injects himself into a situation, you left to your own devices without God is gonna be it's gonna be a hot mess. That's the Greek for it. You know, you guys picked some of that up, right? Jason can corroborate him, Rachel. Right? It's the failure of man and the long-suffering of God. Because every time you fail, like the book of Judges, and you cry out to God, He's faithful to deliver you. He's faithful to deliver you. I mean, you're surpri- I mean if, if I was God in the book of Judges, I would have let them burn. 
right? Because they, they make a mistake, they cry out to God, God saves them. They make a mistake, they cry out to God, God saves them. That long-suffering of our Lord, the Bible says, is salvation. Amen? Now, in 2 Corinthians 1, because it's about the long-suffering of God to deliver us over and over and over and over again, Jesus Christ is pictured in the book of Judges as our deliverer. Right? 2 Corinthians 1.10 is a good verse. It speaks about God, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death. That's your past deliverance, right? That's your sin. That's death and hell we're taken care of. And doth deliver. That's your present tense deliverance. That's God delivering you every day from the power of sin in your life right now. And it says in whom we trust, that He will yet deliver us. That's your future deliverance when He rescues you from the presence of sin forever. So Jesus Christ is our great deliverer pictured in the book of Judges. And the basic breakdown is on your sheet. Uh, Chapters 1 to 3 is Israel's departure and the results of forsaking God. Chapters 3 to 16, the bulk of the book, is Israel's deliverance, and it's that cycle of Departure and deliverance, departure and deliverance. You know, being stupid, God raising up a judge to help them. Being stupid again, God raising up a deliverer to help them. And then the last few verses, the last few chapters rather, 17 to 21, is just Israel's depravity. It's just like, I mean, those of us that had kids, you probably didn't read Judges 17 to 21 as a bedtime story. Because what goes on in Judges 17 to 21 is like, X-rated stuff. It's like twisted. It's violent. It shows you the anarchy, the confusion, the depravity, and how far God's people can fall when they walk away from God. So that's a basic breakdown. Now, let's go to Judges chapter 2. How do we interpret the book? Let's talk about, before we dive into some, some verses and some thoughts here, obviously, every time we interpret any verse of Scripture... We interpret it historically, we interpret it doctrinally, and we interpret it, you know, spiritually or inspirationally, right? One is about what actually happened several thousand years ago. What does this mean in terms of what we know about God? And what does this mean for you as a Christian, not a Jew, in the New Testament church? So let's look at Judges chapter 2, and let's look at verse 6. Historically, all right, historically, historically, this is about... The leadership dying off. And a generation rises up that doesn't know Joshua and doesn't know Joshua's God. Let's look at Judges chapter 6. Uh, Judges chapter 2, I'm sorry. Uh, verse number uh, 6. The Bible says, uh, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua... And all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. Now jump to verse number 10, and this is a really key verse about the historical interpretation. Judges 2.10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, right? So you got Joshua's generation, the people under Joshua. Then you get to this third generation, And it says right here, and also that generation were gathered unto their fathers. So the generation after Joshua, the second generation, they die. And then it says, and there arose another generation after them, 
which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, verse 13. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. Woo! There is something about the third generation principle. I don't know what it all means, but the first generation, like maybe like a me, right? I'm a first generation Christian. I came out of darkness. I'm like a crazy person. I was running around yelling at my parents at the kitchen table about no hope in the Pope and all that stuff. And then there's like the second generation would maybe be my children, right? That would be like that second generation. But something happens in that third generation. If I don't do a good job with my children, their children are going to be that third generation that raises up to know not the Lord and ends up going sideways. And we've got some great preachers. I mean, we've got some great preachers, like even great men like Mel Sabaka. I'll tell you, even like men like Mel Sabaka, that third generation or even his family ain't walking like the old man walked. And I don't say that with any kind of joy or anything. I'm not trying to throw smoke or sand in anybody's eyes. But there's something about that third generation just seems to wander. And historically, that's what it's about. It's about that third generation and those people after Joshua and after the generation after Joshua just going headlong into foolishness. And it frightens me, you know, because the test of my parenting is not my children. It's going to be, if the Lord tarries, my grandchildren. Did I raise them in such a way that they would raise their children in such a way that they won't want to follow my God? All right, so that's historical. Let's go to Judges 21. Let's go to the last verse in the book of Joshua. The last verse of the book of Joshua is the key to the book of Joshua. This is a key verse of the book of Joshua. Doctrinally, um, Judges 21. Yeah, Judges, they sound too much the same. I had that construction hat on too tight. All right. The tool belt was definitely cutting off circulation. I got to lose another 20. All right. But uh, Judges 21 25. I was sticking roofing nails in there to keep me from eating too much. All right. But Judges 21 25. Doctrinally, it's about Israel in the tribulation. Because Israel in the tribulation, they're going to cry out to God. They're going to be in idolatry. I mean, Eli would be the first one to say amen to this. Most of the Jewish people you know, except for that small sliver of like Orthodox, most of them are practical atheists. Right? They're in idolatry, or they're in superstition, or they're in their intelligence, or the, what is that, the Kabbalah, right? They're into all kinds of weird stuff. So in their idolatry and their paganism, they're going to call out to God in the tribulation, and He's going to send a deliverer, Jesus Christ. That's doctrinal. So in Judges 21-25, the last verse of Judges really tells the story. In those days... You might want to underline that phrase, in those days. That's often connected to the tribulation time, by the way. In those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And that's the problem you're going to see in the tribulation. Everybody's just going to be doing it the way they think they should do it. And that's the picture. There's no king yet for Israel. That's the doctrinal uh, teaching. There's no king for Israel yet. So what about us? What does it mean for us? Well, spiritually, you know what it means? It's a picture of the Laodicean church age. You know what the Laodicean church is? Blind. You know what the Laodicean church has? Like Israel has no king, the church today has no King James Bible. 
We got no, they got no king. They got three Bibles on the pulpit, or they got better renderings, or they got Greek nuggets or lexicons and words that they don't even know what they're talking about. They're swimming above their pay grade. And because, because you look around, the church is so nauseating to God as a whole. I'm not saying you wonderful people, but as a whole, come to the fairs. Come to the fairs and see what Christians are like. They're like all over the place. They think Jesus is a leprechaun. They think they got visions. They, they got all kinds of stuff. They have no idea what's going on. Thank, thank God. I was going to say thank the lucky stars and be a pagan myself. But thank God. Thank God that you have a King James Bible because this is like your anchor and your moorings. You're not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. I know I say that a lot because... We have to like shake ourselves that not everybody's like us. We are the, like Brian and I say, we're the minority of the minority. We're the pimple on the butt cheek of Christianity, right? We are the weirdos of the weirdos that we think that God preserved a book that is our king and our final authority. And so like there was no king in Israel in those days. There's no King James Bible in the church these days. And that's why everybody's doing whatever looks good to them. And God says, you don't even know, Laodicea, that you're poor and miserable and blind. Wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. Because they'll be naked at the judgment seat of Christ. So that is a, that, those are three ways to interpret the book, right? Historically, doctrinally, spiritually. Let's jump in now to some of the pictures, all right? I'm going to erase this, all right? And I'm going to just go chapter by chapter and just get into some of the pictures Again, you have some more details on your handout of the different apostasies and servitudes and all that stuff that I don't remember either. But um, let's get into some truths. Let's get to chapter 1. Uh, and this is indicated on your sheet. Chapter 1 is Israel's slide into compromise. It starts right at the first chapter. So go back to Judges 1. And let's actually go to Joshua 24. And I mean Joshua 24. I got it this time. Joshua all right, Joshua 24. So I want you to notice now, right from jump, Israel is sliding into compromise. And that is a no-no. If you're going to live in victory, there's no compromise. Look at Joshua 24, look at verse 16, 14. Look at Joshua's warning. Famous verses, you probably got them stuck on a wall or in a plaque somewhere, right? On a bookmark. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood. That's not Noah's flood, that's Egypt, right? He called that parting of the Red Sea a flood. Amos 8.8 8 says that. And in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Because back there in Egypt, the Israelites were messing around with all those pagan gods too. So God says, you left that stuff behind, serve me now. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, meaning in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now jump to verse 20. Look at Joshua's warning. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after they have done you good. God said that. God wrote that. I think some Christians today, starting with the man in the mirror, God is not to be trifled with. 
God is not a punk. God is not like a sleepy grandpa. God is not like a drunk Santa. You know, you could just get some treats from him when, he, when you wake him up a little bit. No, God is holy. God is righteous. God bought your body. And when, there's one thing when a new Christian makes mistakes. But if you've been saved a length of time and you just keep going back to the vomit, God says, I'm going to let you stew in it for a little while, boy. I'm going to let you eat that a little bit, daughter. You're not supposed to be doing that, living that way. And God puts a pretty stern warning. because I want to do you good. I brought you into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. But you mess around with me. You just like thumb your nose at me. I was going to do a Sicilian salute and get like a strike. But you thumb your nose at me. And that's what a lot of Christians do to God. You know, they just, you know, my grandma's in my head saying some words I shouldn't be saying. But, you know, just say some things to God like, thanks, but no thanks, God. I got to do my thing. God says, well, yeah. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. You know, God can let you feel some leanness that is not fun at all. So is that a threat? Absolutely. God made that threat. God said, you walk away from me, and I'll put you back in servitude and bondage like you had before. So that's his threat. Now, go to Judges 1. Look across the page. That's the warning. Could there be, was he pulling any punches on that warning? You know, sometimes the preachers, you know, we got to be diplomatic. Joshua was not diplomatic. He was like, guys, if you do this, God's going to crack you over the head. He's going to make you feel it. And, uh... Right from the start, Israel starts going right into compromise and right into idolatry. We don't get past chapter 1, and they're messing up already. Look at, look at, we don't get past the second verse of chapter 1, and they're already compromising. Watch this. Now, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? Simple question. God, who fights the Canaanites first? Answer. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. Class, who did God want to go up first? Judah. Judah. We all got it. Very good. Give yourself a gold matzah. You got it, right? That's it. Simple. That's it. Okay. Verse 3. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him. From the start, Israel's compromising God's commandments. He said, I want Judah to go. You know what Judah does? Simeon, Simeon, come with me. And when God says it's your turn, I'll go with you. They're cutting deals already. We're not past the third verse. They're striking deals and making compromises. God said, Judah, you go. No, no, no. You know what? You know what God says? Don't marry a lost girl. Don't marry a lost guy. Is that plain enough for you? Yeah, but God, you know, you know, hook a brother up, you know. That's what happens, right? Right there, there, wheeling and dealing, wheeling and dealing. And uh, listen, if you want to live in God's promised land, you can't have any latitude with God's commandments. God, I know what you said, but I'm going to do it this way. God, I know what you said, but I'm just going to like make it work. No, no, you got to do it the way God said it, where God said it, how God said it. Don't deviate from the program. Wire it the way the, pro, the, the thing said to wire it so it doesn't blow up in your face. Right? That's what he's saying to do. And when you know what happens? When you're worshiping other gods, you don't trust what God says. Isn't that the truth? When you're not walking with God, the verses just don't hit you. 
You're like, I can't do that. I can't follow that. I can't trust that. I need to find me a Simeon. And Israel's heart is already departing from the Lord. They're already departing from Joshua and the zeal of their previous generations. And they don't have that heart that Joshua had just to go all in like he or Caleb did. They're just saying, I need a Simeon. I got to do it my way. I got to like cut the colors and do something differently. And Israel strays from the Lord. Watch the first chapter. And slides down. And can I tell you in chapter 1, we've got incomplete victory that leads to chaos and confusion. That's a key word for chapter 1. I put it on your sheet. Incomplete victory. Like doing it halfway. Didn't want to say anything else there, but you know, right? Look at Judges 120. I'm going to show you the slide down. Why do you want to see the slide down? Let's start with the good guy. Judges 120. Ready? And they gave Hebron unto Caleb. Remember Caleb, right? Caleb's a good guy. Caleb's, I'm going to maybe preach about Caleb in a week or so. I don't know. I can't get him out of my head. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said. And look what Caleb did. He expelled thence the three sons of Anak. Well, that's a good thing. Caleb fully follows the Lord and expels the enemy. No compromise. Gets rid of all of them in his inheritance. Good job, Caleb. That's the top of the ladder. Want to see the next rung down? Look at verse 22. Let's look at Joseph. And the house of Joseph, they also went up against Bethel. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph sent it to cry Bethel. Now the name of the city before was Luz. And the spies saw a man come forth out of the city. And they said unto him, Show us, we pray thee, the entrance into the city, and we will show thee mercy. And when he showed them the entrance into the city, they smote the city with the edge of the sword, but they let go the man and all his family. And the man went into the land of Hittites and built a city and called the name thereof Luz, which is the name thereof unto this day. They were supposed to wipe him out. What's Joseph's tribe doing? Compromising with the enemy. Hey, you let us in, we'll hook you up. Caleb fully followed, expelled them all. Joseph starts cutting deals. That's the next down rung on the ladder. Let's go one step further down. Let's look at verse number 27. Ready? 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and her towns. Look at verse number 29. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants. But the, but the end of verse 30. But the Canaanites dwelt among them. Verse 31. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants. Verse 32. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants, nor the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beth Anna. But he dwelt among the Canaanites. Caleb expelled them. Joseph makes a deal with them. The other tribes, they're not driving them out. They're going to the movies with them. They're going to the markets with them. They're cohabitating with them. They're dwelling among them. We're stepping down, man. They're not driving out the enemy out of their life. They were supposed to drive them out. You know that's what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to drive the enemy out of your life. You're supposed to be fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. Not finding a comfortable place where you can get along with the world and get along with the devil and, and like get along with your flesh. I'm not saying you got to be a jerk to your neighbors. Be a nice neighbor like Danny and pray for your neighbors when they fall down the stairs. But don't, you know, God's saying don't dwell among them. Because you want to see what happens? We've gone from Caleb to Joseph to the other tribes. Guess what? Backsliding is the word in the Bible, not backslidden. means you just keep on sliding. And in verse number 34, they keep on sliding. Because in 34 it says, And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain. 
for they would not suffer them to come down into the valley. Guess what? Now Dan is driven back. They didn't drive the enemies out, and they end up getting driven back. That's supposed to be their inheritance, and the enemy's like, don't come up here. You hear about that at all today? Don't come on to this mount. Don't worship by this temple mount. You better not. That was given to them, and they're going, they drew these borders. They, oh, you can't come up here. We're going to get upset. Blah, 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 blah. What is that? That's you didn't drive the enemies out, and now they're driving you back. And Israel did that back then. They didn't drive them out, and they get driven back. Listen, you don't take care of the flesh in your life. You don't take care of the devil in your life. You don't take care of the world in your life. Pretty soon, they'll be driving you into a corner where you're going to be like this with nowhere to go. That's what was happening to the tribe of Dan. And that's a downward slide in chapter 1. They compromise, and they just thought, slip, sliding away. In chapter 2, I say on your sheet there, is the Lord's rebuke. And let's go to chapter 2 right there, because now we see the results of Israel's disobedience. Their utter disobedience. The Lord's rebuke to them. Ready? Look at 2. Judges 2.2. 2. God says, And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Again, let's see. Ye shall make no league with the... Everything but one word in that, that clause has one syllable. Inhabitant. Inhabitants. All right? Four syllables. Right? Everything's one syllable words. What is God saying? Don't strike a deal with the enemy. Is that hard to get? That's pretty simple, right? What qualified as obedience? Don't make a league with them. Don't strike hands with them. Don't get in the yoke with them. Don't align yourself with them. Don't compromise with them. Don't jump in the pig pen with them. Don't marry yourself to them. That's what he's saying to them. What does Israel do? Verse 2, keep reading. You shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. We mentioned this verse last week. Why have he done this? I wonder if God's going to pause when he asks that question. A good parent would pause. A guy like me who just talks too fast just breezes over the moment. But you know what? A, a good parent would just say, I told you not to do this, and you did it. Why'd you do it? It's uh, a good question, Lord. We'll ask it on a Thursday night. Ask Pat on a Thursday night. No. You ever think about that? Just, just pause there for a second. God said this. I did this. God's looking at you right now. If you're at home, he's looking at you too, even though you're in your flip-flops. He's looking at you saying, why'd you do that? God said, don't go with her, don't go with him, don't do that. You did it anyway. Why'd you do that? Now, when I ask it, I'm mean-spirited. When God asks it, he's right. I'm not putting a telescope on the Bible. God's just saying, why? That's why there aren't 150 people here. Because most Christians today can't take that preaching. They just want to be stroked. But the Bible doesn't stroke you. The Bible is trying to help you. And sometimes the medicine doesn't always taste good, but it's good for you. And God's saying, why'd you do this? Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Why'd you do that? And if you could fix it, Stop doing it, right? If you know you're doing something wrong, God wasn't saying that to like rub their face in the dirt. He's saying, stop, stop doing it. Look what he says, look what he says, verse three, all right? Oh, you know why they did it? Verse 20, go to chapter one, look at verse 20. I'll show you why they did it. 
Here's why they didn't obey completely. 28, 128. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute. Did not utterly drive them out. They said, we can make money money off these people. We get them to pay us. We could sublet our inheritance and get them to pay us for their little, you know, halal meat and their little deli over there. We'll just come, we'll get it. We'll, we'll, we'll get some. The love of money is the root of all evil, right? And there they are doing it for filthy lucre's sake. And they think, wow, we can make some money off this. We get a little inheritance up there, a little inheritance down here. Hook a brother up. This is great. No, God says, get rid of them. Get rid of them. Keep going. Verse 3. What does God do? 2-3, I'm sorry, 2-3. What does God do when we don't obey completely? That's the theme of chapter 2 in the beginning. Obey completely. Right? If I say, um, I want you to put all these books on that table. And you put all these books on this table. Did you obey me? Well, I put the books on a table. Yeah, but that's not what I told you to do. I told you to put them on that table. You obeyed halfway. And God says, that's disobedience. So what does God do when we don't obey completely, i.e. disobey? Verse 3, wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. I'm not going to get rid of the bad guys in your life. You got to do it. With my strength and my word and the power of my Holy Spirit in your life, you got to draw the sword and get rid of some things. Don't, no, don't pray. I'm not answering that prayer. I told you what to do. I said, get away from them, cease and desist, don't make a league, don't shack up with them, don't go down that road with them. He said, that's what I said to do. I'm not going to drive them out. When you make a mess, I'm not going to just pick them up and move them out of your life. You're going to have to do it. That's what God said. I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. God says, I'm going to make those things thorns and snares. I had a little girl today at camp, Vanessa. She said, Mr. Pat the Builder, what's wrong with your eye? I sat down. I said, Vanessa. I said, Vanessa the Builder. That's a long story. And I sat down. I said, you see my eye right here? This is my eye. It's green. right? See my left eye? I got hit with a thorn bush when I was eight years old, tore my eye apart. I'm legally blind in this eye. I know a little bit about thorns. And thorns can be a pain. They rip and catch and can do all kinds of damage if they snap back and hit you in the face. And God says, these enemies that you won't get rid of, I'm going to let them prick you when you go on your walk. I'm going to let them stick you and catch you. And they'll trap you, those gods. They'll snare you. So look at chapter 3 now. Look at verse 5. What happens to Israel? Here's their judgment. 3-5. Here's their fate, I should say. 3, five, And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. Watch out for all the ites, all right? Watch out for all those. The ites are not good guys in the Bible. The Hivites, the, the Amorites, the Canaanites, they're some of the biggest perverted monsters on the planet. God said, don't mess with those boys at all. Um, verse 6, but what they do? And they took their daughters to be their wives. That's a league. (laughs) That's a union. And gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. They forsake the Lord. He said, oh man, look at them. No, look at us. We do the same dumb thing. 
I do the same dumb thing. And I don't know about you, but these first few chapters, I was, you know, I come home from kids in the garden, I study this a little bit. It convicts the snot out of me. I don't, this is pretty plain. This is not like, this is not cryptic. I feel like this is like plate high. Everybody can get this. This is some practical stuff. God says, you want the promised land? You want victory? Don't abandon my battle plan. Stay with the stuff. Do it my way. And don't keep banging your head into a wall and wondering what's happening. Right? If you keep banging your head into a wall, it's going to hurt. God says, try something different. Try it my way. All right, let's keep going now. Now, chapter three, before we move into the judges, chapter three is why God leaves some enemies behind. Because did you notice how many of you are saved? Because if you weren't saved, I'd say, wow. But uh, (laughs) you notice God didn't take away all your problems. God didn't miraculously remove every lost person in your life that gave you agita. That's a technical term. Right? God didn't make the evil world stop calling you and texting you. God didn't give the devil like a cease and desist order on your life. No, in fact, he might have done the opposite. He let the leash out a little bit on you. The dog started barking a little closer to you. The problems seemed to rise up and seemed to overwhelm you. Why does God leave some problems in your life, some enemies behind? Chapter 3 has the answer. Why he does it. Why he leaves the world, the flesh, and the devil for you to contend with now. You ever think about that? Think practically. Why didn't God save you and just take you to heaven? Right? Just like, whoop, you're saved, great. No, he leaves you here. And he doesn't just leave you here. He leaves you in this stinking flesh that still wants what it wants, feels what it feels, desires what it desires. He leaves you in this godless, depraved world. He leaves you with an enemy roaming around who's the God of this world, who hates your guts and hates your Savior. And you're like, Lord... What's going on here? Chapter 3 is the answer. Verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them. The Lord leaves some enemies behind to prove you, to put you to the test. That's why the Lord let the devil into the Garden of Eden to see if Adam would stand up to the test. And we know he failed miserably. That's why the Lord let the devil contend with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ passed the test. The second Adam passed what the first Adam failed. And God's going to leave the enemy, some enemies behind in your life to see if you'll go back with the world, give in to the devil or resist him, subdue the flesh or cater to it. He wants to see because he's up to a lot more than just the saving of your soul. He's up to preparing. Remember the first lesson we did? It's about a king and his kingdom. And he's trying to form some rulers for that kingdom to come. And he's looking for some people. There'll be some citizens in that kingdom, but he's also trying to groom some rulers in that kingdom. And not everybody gets to rule. Only those that have proved themselves faithful down here get to rule with Jesus Christ in the hereafter. So... Prove your own selves has a lot more to it than just don't, you know, go out with that bad person. It means prove yourself. Stand up to the test that God has for you. So he's trying to put you to the test. And verse number two, he goes on. He says, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know, watch it now, to teach them war. You see, he left some enemies behind to teach you how to fight. 
Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Am I a soldier of the cross? Hey, folks at home and everybody sitting in the library, the Lord is trying to make some soldiers out of saints. Right now, I wasn't a soldier. Some of you were. I respect you. I salute you. I look up to you. But I feel from the Bible that the Lord is trying to make some soldiers out of saints. I think today we got a lot of snowflakes out of saints. We need some soldiers out of saints. God says jump and your answer should be how high? Sir, yes, sir. That should be your answer. We're like, well, God, do I have to jump? There's a footstool right there. No, God says jump. How high, Lord? Sir, yes, sir. And you jump as high as he tells you to jump, right? Soldiers out of saints. Verse number four is the last thing. And they were there. They were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord. Ultimately, the Lord wants to see, what will you do with what I've given you? I've given you my commandments. I've given you my promises. I've told you the way to live, and you at least know where to find it. What are you going to do about it? You see, we think God's a... I don't want to say schmuck, but that's, that's not a nice word. But we think God's like a, like a doofus, like a dope. Like, you know, he's just up there like, oh, you know, I love you, you love me. You know, that's what we think God is like. God's like, he's, he's the general. He's the captain of our salvation, right? And he's trying to prove you and get you to learn how to fight and see, okay, here it is, son. Here's a little bit of leeway. Here's a little bit of stuff I gave you. What do you do with that? Because I'm not giving you more until you're faithful with what I've given you already. Right? He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is not faithful in that which is, is, is least is not going to be faithful with much. That's a Bible principle. Right? So let's go to chapter uh, 3 now. All right? We're still in 3. Let's go to verse 7. So we're going to start to move now into the second section. I'm going to just do a little of this. And as we move into the second section, and the second section on your sheet is Israel's deliverance. The first section was Israel's departure. This is where they're sliding into idolatry, sliding into compromise. The heart of the book, the rest of chapter 3, all the way through chapter 16, is Israel's deliverance. It's the judges and the deliverers being raised up as Israel goes from one apostasy to another, and they mess up. And I want you to notice, all throughout this section, there's going to be this four-point pattern that's just going to keep happening over and over and over again. Look at verse 7. Here's the first part. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. First thing they're going to do is they're going to forget God. They're going to start serving other gods. That's what happens to you. You forget God, you start serving another god. That's what Israel did. Step two, verse number eight. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cush, that guy, Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Say that three times fast. And the children of Israel served, they had to put it in there twice, Lord, Cushan Rishathaim, eight years, right? So step two is Israel is sold into bondage. This is how it's going to happen. Step one, you forget God. Step two, God lets you eat it. He says, you want to serve sin? You're going to be the servant of sin. Jesus said, whosoever therefore commits sin is the servant of sin. And he puts them in bondage. He sells them into bondage. He says, guys, payday someday. You're going to pay the price. You give in to those other gods. I'm going to let those other gods lead you by the nose. Step two, verse three. Here's what happens. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord... That's the third part. 
They start there crying. They start there whining. They start there praying. They start reaching out to God. That's what happens in your life. You make a mistake. You leave God. God lets you feel the pain and the weight of your stupidity. You know what you start doing? If you're smart, you come to yourself like the prodigal son. You go, what am I doing? You turn back to God. And look what God does in the rest of verse 9. And the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel. That is the pattern. Israel's departure, their bondage, they cry out, and they get a deliverer. This is going to happen at least seven times this cycle in chapters 3 to 16. They're going to go up and down and up and down, and God is so gracious to keep sending deliverers. Can I get an amen there? God is gracious to give us more than one chance. We didn't deserve one chance, and He gives us a lot of chances. And this is just a picture of the Great Tribulation and the Second Coming of Christ, where Israel is going to be making mistakes, making mistakes, years of making mistakes. They're going to call out to God, and then He's going to split the eastern sky, and that deliverer is going to come. So let's look at some of them. Now, depending on who you read, everybody numbers the judges differently. Some say there's 12 judges, some say there's 13 judges, some say there's 10 judges, some say there's 9 judges. I'm going to say there's definitely 12 deliverers. Some of them judged Israel, which I guess would qualify them as judges. The 13th one, hello, was Abimelech. He was a bad, bad guy. So that, that says something. 13 is the bad guy. So let's just, we're going to walk through the first few, all right? So the first one is a judge, uh, I'm just going to write his name. I'm going to say judge. The first guy is Othniel. You see him right there. Othniel's our first. He's called the judge, and he's right there in um, verse th- uh, 3, verse 9. It says, um, he delivered them. He raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this is Caleb's uh, grandson, is going to be this first judge, this first deliverer. I guess something good ran in that family or something like that. I guess they taught somebody right, because Othniel, Caleb's grandson, ends up being the first deliverer and this first judge that the Bible mentions. And the second guy he mentions is this guy named Ehud. E what? Ehud. All right? Ehud. Can God do it? Right? Ehud. All right? Now look at 3.12. Ehud was the left-handed man with a dagger. So if you're left-handed here... I don't think you're full of the devil. There are some good left-handed people in the Bible. But Ehud is the left-handed man with a dagger. Look at verse 12. Um, And the children of Israel did evil again. See, there's the pattern. In the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Um, That's where I wanted to stop, right? So Moab... And Amnon smite Israel. If you know anything about your Bible, Moab and Amnon are bad guys, right? The Moabites and the Ammonites are the descendants of the incestual relationship of Lot with his daughters. They have been a plague and were a plague to Israel for a long, long time. But look at verse 15. Here's how Ehud delivers them. 15. Uh, but when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of a cubit length, 
and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. So Eager's got this, Ehud's got this dagger with two edges to deliver them from the king of Moab. Now, when I read about two edges, does that ring a bell? Because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is a two-edged sword. Now, that's the whole kit and caboodle. Ehud just got a dagger. So note that. Let's go to verse 20. Verse 20. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. You know what a dagger is? A dagger is like a good message from the Bible. It sticks you. It's not the whole Bible. It's not the whole sword that's got two edges. It's a dagger that he made with two edges. He got some things out of the Word of God, and he made himself a dagger with two edges, and he stuck this king right in his gut, right where his lusts and his appetites were, and he stuck him right there. You say, why did he stick him right there? Look at verse 22. Another good thing about a message. And the haft also went in after the blade, so his hand got stuck in the job of the hut action right there. And the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his, his belly and the dirt came out. Now, biologically, I know what that means. But spiritually, a good message sticks you and gets the dirt out of you. That's what the Bible is supposed to do. That's what Bible preaching is supposed to do. It's supposed to bother you. If you listen to me yap for 60 or 70 minutes and feel better afterwards, there is something wrong with you. Because Bible preaching is supposed to bother you, upset you, make you uncomfortable, because the Holy Spirit has taken some of that Word of God and it's like a dagger with two edges. It's sticking you right where it hurts, man. Right where your seat of your appetites, your lusts, your affections and your passions are. Right in the gut. And He's sticking you right there because He's trying to get the dirt out of you. And I'm going to say, Amen, I've had good preaching my life, we all need a good Ehud to stick us with the Word of God, right? Just to get the dirt out of you, right? That's Ehud. Let's look at the next one. Next one. Next one is Deborah. Or Deborah, if you want to say it that way. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Say whatever you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. Uh, Judges, go to chapter 4. So the Canaanites now put them in bondage. Same thing. Look at Judges 4, verse 1. See it? And the children of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. It's just like this merry-go-round with these people. Oh, the long-suffering of our Lord. Thank God that He's God and He's not like us. Because we would have kicked these people to the curb. And in verse 4 it says, Deborah... A prophetess, that means she's a female, the wife of the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. So Deborah is a prophetess. She's the one that God starts pointing to to help deliver Israel along with Barak. You say, why did God have to reach for a woman? You know why? Because there were no good men around. And if this is a picture of the Laodicean age, there's very few good men around. Now, when we started, the Lord started this work, it was a whole bunch of godly ladies. And we prayed for men, and you know what? The Lord has brought a lot of great men around. And I, I feel like uh, there's some towers in here that like watch each other's back, and there's a great fellowship among the men. It should be, there should be, I'm going to sound misogynistic, but I'm not, but the Holy Spirit is a He, right? God is our Father. So if we're walking in that Spirit, there should be some of that, that male strength in a church. There should be that. If it's the right Spirit in a church, but you know what a lot of churches are today. 
grandmothers and aunts and ladies and like that. They run everything, right? And, I, and, and the ladies here, we have the best ladies in the world. They could run things. My wife, I mean, some of you out there could be president of the United States, no doubt. But God says, can I have some men, please? <laughs> Are there any men out there? I just need a few good men to help me out here. And the Bible says at one point, I sought for a man that could stand in the gap and I found none. Shame on any guy that he's getting out amen by a lady, out read by a lady, out prayed by a lady. Now, I know that's how it is a lot of times because I read my Bible and the women followed Jesus long before the men. And when all the men ran away, the ladies were at the cross. I know how it goes, but shame on us men that is in this Laodicean age, which Judges is a picture of, when God had delivered them from some Canaanites, he couldn't find a decent man, He found, but he'll find some decent ladies. You know, there's, a, there's an author out there named Gail Ripplinger. She wrote some great books about the King James Bible. And you know what some of the super-separated, hyper-spiritual brethren want to say? Oh, I won't read that book. I won't be taught by a woman. Well, then why didn't you write it, stupid? Why didn't you write it? God had to raise up a godly woman like Gail Ripplinger to write some stuff about the King James Bible to help the rest of us dopes who didn't have the unction to come off the, you know, the, the fishing pier or the ball field to go study all the stuff that she did. So shame on us men that he had to you know, do that. But Deborah in this story is a type of those 144,000 Jewish virgins, by the way. She pictures them because no relationship with a woman, right? That's what those guys did. And we're speaking about the Great Tribulation. Barak, Barak is a type of Christ. Jael is a type of the church. And Sisera is a type of the Antichrist. These are your figures here. So Deborah looks forward to the, to the virgins in the tribulation. Uh, Barak looks to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jael, who drives the nail into Sisera's head, looks to the church, that's you, and Sisera is a type of the Antichrist. If you look at Judges chapter 4, verse 21, let me show you how the battle ends. 4.21. So Israel's got them on the retreat. And the Bible says, Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent. This is gruesome. She got it done. That's it. She got it done, brother. She, got, she, she watched the Home Depot commercial. Let's do this. Dun, 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 dun. She took that spike and boom, you know, painted the bathroom and then killed the Antichrist figure. Right? Then JL's wife, Heber's wife took a nail of the tent. Now, some of you, you know, put a tent in the ground like a stake, you know. Imagine driving that through somebody's skull. This is a lady that probably like suckled her babies and like breastfed and was cooking stew at the same time because women could do 17 things at the same time. Guys are like, eh, what changed the channel? All right. Heber's wife took a nail to the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And I think she was singing if I had a hammer when she did it. <laughs> because, I mean, she really rocked him to sleep. I mean, so the battle ends. Thanks, I'll be here all week. The battle ends when Jael, the church, smites Sisera, type of the Antichrist head, with a hammer. What's the hammer? Jer- the word of God. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like as a hammer? Right? The hammer pictures the word of God. That's what you build with, the hammer, right? 2 Timothy 2.15 says that a Christian is supposed to be a workman 
rightly dividing the word of truth. So like Eli, my Jewish carpenter friend over here, might swing a hammer and work with a hammer. You're supposed to know this Bible well enough that you could be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed and wield the word of God to build something in somebody's life, starting with your own. And the Antichrist, hello, dies by a head wound, people. And all the types, I think there's like 10 men in the Bible get killed by a woman. And here's a few of them right now, which all picture the head wound the Antichrist will get at the second coming of Christ. Isn't it like the Bible was written by God? If you start to see the pictures and the patterns, it opens up to you. I'll give you some. Abimelech, he's a type of Antichrist. He dies by a head wound when a woman drops a piece of millstone and busts his head open in Judges chapter 9. That's one. Goliath, he's a type of Antichrist. He dies by a head wound from your David, right? In 1 Samuel. Nabal, he's a type of Antichrist. He dies when God, quote, returned his wickedness upon his own head. Now go to Genesis 3.15. Let me show you something here. Let me show you something. Genesis 3.15. Let me hurry this. I'm just going to do Gideon after this, and then I'll be done. All right. In the in the Old Testament, rich, so rich, you don't you'll never understand your New Testament. Read the New Testament first, but then get into the Old Testament and learn the pictures because it's just God. That's how God teaches you. Pastor Mel used to say, "The great tragedy in our times is the failure of teaching of the Old Testament." I remember hearing that come out of his own mouth. I don't think I ever heard Pastor Mel preach out of the New Testament. He just, I preached uh, shekels out of the book of Numbers and, you know, uh, eagles and Deuteronomy. I mean, some of the greatest message I heard Pastor Mel preach were just things, and you probably heard a lot more, but I heard him take some, I heard him take some of those Old Testament things that were as dry as cracker juice to me, man, and he just peeled the proverbial paint off the walls because that guy walked with God. And uh, I only got to know him a little bit. But Genesis 3.15, the Lord is pronouncing this first messianic promise to Adam and Eve, and he says... And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between thy seed, that's the devil's seed, and her seed, that's the woman's seed, it, the woman's seed, that's Jesus Christ, right? It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There's both comings right there. The serpent bruised his heel at the first coming, but he's going to bruise the serpent's head at the second coming. It's gonna bru- in fact, go to Habakkuk. Why not? Now there were nowhere in the neighborhood. Keep you awake by going to Habakkuk. Get a kick out of it. Habakkuk. I must be dehydrated. (laughs) It was good watermelon. I think I had some of that watermelon. (laughs) Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 13. Ready? I'm just trying to show you the pictures. Habakkuk 3.13. It's God, it's, it's the prophet speaking to the Lord. And he says in Habakkuk 3.13, he says, uh, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck, Selah. So the Antichrist is going to die by a head wound by the seed of a woman. Now go back to Judges chapter 5. Let me show you one other thing about this before we put a close to this little point here. Judges chapter 5. 
Judges chapter 5. You with me okay? All right, I just got a few, just one more person after this, and I'll be quick. Judges chapter 5, look at verse 1 and 2. I'm not even going to read them to you, but Judges 5, 1 and 2. You know what happens after the battle when that Antichrist is dead? Or that type of Antichrist's head is busted? Deborah and Barak sing a song. You ever read in Revelation chapter 14? They're singing a song. You ever read about Exodus 15? When they watch Pharaoh get drowned, you know what they're doing? They're singing a song. They're going to sing a song when that devil and his man gets put down, like Pharaoh, like the Antichrist, like this picture here. And in verse number four, look what happens. In that song, they say, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water, the mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. In that song, you've got the path of the second advent in that song. You're going to go up through Seir, come up the king's highway, Come down to Sinai, come up to Seir, go up the King's Highway, cross. It's all in, it's in that song. That's how you put together Jesus Christ's path when he comes back. Amazing Bible. Now let's go to our last guy, Judges chapter 6. And this one, I think we know a lot about him. He's a great Sunday school lesson or just a lot of good preaching. Comes out of Gideon. A lot of stuff about Gideon's army. Let's go to Judges 6. I don't think I'm going to leave you out of Judges. We'll stay in Judges for a little bit now. A couple of quick things. I want to show you quickly. Now, Gideon helps them defeat the Midianites, who really were a problem. And uh, I want to show you three things about Gideon first, before we get to the second part. God's faithfulness, Gideon's faithlessness, and the army's faithful, right? The faithful army. Ready? Look at verse 11. Now God's going to call Gideon. And I want you to notice something. The Lord is going to see something that nobody else can see. You know, I'm sitting, I'm looking at your, your beautiful mugs right now. I don't know who's going to do good tomorrow. I don't know who's going to do bad tomorrow. I don't know who's going to be a preacher in here, who's going to be a missionary in here, who's going to be a, a good grandpa, a good aunt, a good sister in Christ. I don't know. But God can see what no man can see. You know what he sees in people? Potential. The Lord sees potential. I don't see potential. We get jaded. We give up. We, we get scarred. We kind of like don't look at each other right anymore. God sees potential. And he looks at Gideon, verse 11, and it says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Please notice first that the Lord calls a man who is already about his father's business. He's in his father's field, and he's getting some food for his people to hide from the enemies who has taken everything. You say, I want to serve God. I was waiting for God to call me. The phone's never going to ring. God calls somebody and uses somebody who's just doing his father's business in his father's field as best that he can. Right? A rolling stone gathers no moss. God says, get moving in the right direction, and you know what? I'll move you in the right direction. Right? Look at verse 12. He's not going to come down and like, you know, give you this heavenly text message. Thou shalt go to Papua New Guinea. No, it's not going to happen. You're going to start helping out with a Sunday school class. You're going to start helping out, you know, cooking wings at the barbecue. You're going to start helping out carrying a garbage can. You're going to start helping out carrying a box of tracks. You're going to start going to a fair. You're just going to start doing things and God's going to go boop, boop, boop. And next thing you know, five years pass and you're like, you want me to preach a message? Like that, that's how it happens, guys. This idea of sitting at youth camp and waiting for a feeling to get called is, I think, a construct. I mean, maybe it happens that way sometimes and God could use it, but you got to get moving for God and then God gets you moving. Uh, look at verse 12. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Wow. The Lord sees potential. He sees what he can do through you. He's sitting there threshing the wheat. Mighty man of valor. I haven't gone to war. I'm not a soldier. I got no deployment papers or anything like that. What are you talking about? God says, I, I call those things which be not as though they were. Right? I see missionaries. I see, I see all kinds of stuff in this room right now. I see future pastors. I see, I see great helpers. I see great leaders. I see Sunday school teachers. God ha- sees potential in all of you guys. Right? Uh, keep reading. Verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of Midian. Can I tell you, the Lord wants a man who wants to see God work. He sees this man, he's upset that his nation is pow-powing to an enemy of Israel. He's upset that God is, he wants to see God work. And God says, I want to see somebody who wants to see me work. And he shows up. Verse number 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Can you see finally, the Lord resisteth the proud and uses humble, broken vessels. Gideon's like, what can I do? I'm poor. We've got nothing. God says, you're just the guy I want. Broken, empty vessels. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Didn't he choose weak things to confound the things which are mighty? That's what God works with. Who, what are we? We're weak, broken vessels. God says, that's good. I can fill an empty vessel. I, I use broken vessels. You know, most of us, you know, especially go to, you know, uh, 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 some churches. God would show up and say, I want you to do this. Some people would be like, well, it's about time, God. I was waiting for you to recognize my gifts, recognize my talents. You know, the, the shine of my halo is dimming a little bit, but now it's okay. I've got this, God. no. When God says, do something, your knees should knock. And like, God, I can't do this. You better know you can't do it. That's why God's trying to keep you humble. And that's exactly what he does there. That's God's faithfulness. But look at verse 36. Let me show you Gideon's faithlessness. He put the fleece out twice. That was a no-no, guys. You see verse number uh, 36? And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the floor, like a piece of clothing, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow and thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water. Why did Gideon have to see something in order to trust God? You get these Christians sometimes, I put a fleece out. I put a fleece out. You're not supposed to put a fleece out. You're supposed to step out by faith. When God tells you to do something, no, I put a fleece out. I put a fleece out. No, you're supposed to step out when God tells you to step out. He's sitting there. He's wringing the water out. How much water does God have to show you? How much of that book does God have to show you for you to trust him? God was merciful and let him wring some water out. And God will show you verse after verse after verse after verse. But how many verses do you need to see before you'll trust him? Keep going. That wasn't good enough for Gideon. 
<laughs> Gideon said unto God, uh, mm, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once, that it was really twice, with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. So, man, the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. We're supposed to step out in faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So you want to please God? Trust Him. Now, Judges 7 is the army faithful. And we're not going to read all these verses. But Gideon starts with 32,000 and ends up with 300. That's quite a reduction. Man, if I can only cut a budget that way, right? 32,000 to 300. You say, why... Did God do this? Let's see how he cut them down. Verse number three. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And they returned to the people 20 and 2,000. God gets rid of 22,000 people for being afraid. God says, you're scared? Don't try to fight with us. You're going to ruin the whole thing. 22,000 down. Verse four. Here's a second cut. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them there for thee there. I will try them for thee there. You know what he does next? Gideon is told, watch how they handle the water. Watch what they do when they come to the water. Ephesians 5.26 talks about the washing of the water by the Word. You know how God's going to prove you and see if you're ready to fight? What do you do with the water. How do you handle the water? That's how it makes... Now, you and I would say 32,000, that's a revival. 10,000, that's a revival. Maybe we could turn the world upside down. God says, nope, little as much when God is in it. I just need a few good people. Watch. If they're afraid, stay home. You got some courage? Let's see how you handle the water. And that, that, you know what? That's always been God's proving ground, by the way. How do you handle the water? You don't have to know everything in the Bible. But how do you respond to the water? Do you just gobble it up for yourself? Are you keen like a soldier, you know, just having that circumspect look as you lap with your tongue, you know, and just kind of take it to your mouth like this? Or are you just like, okay, what does it say? What does it say? Or do you just have that wisdom from above? Oh, man, God's always proving you by the water, folks. Verse 19. Finish up right here with the battle. So God goes to battle with these 19. And in verse number 19, and these 300. In verse number 19, Gideon and his 300 men fight this battle in the valley of Megiddo. The same valley where Armageddon will take place. Okay? So if you want to write Judges 7, 19 to 20, and write down Revelation 16, 16 next to it, that's a cross-reference, because that scene right there is a beautiful picture of the battle of Armageddon at the second coming. And please notice, if you're reading those verses... The Gideon's army, those 300, have three objects. A lamp, a pitcher, and a trumpet. And there's a lot in those three things, but let me just give you something to go home on with this. First, the lamp. The lamp is the light of God's Word. That's the light. You got the lamp. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light... Unto my path, Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. So you got a lamp? Say amen. You got a lamp. You got a pitcher. 
I don't mean the guy that throws balls and strikes, but that's the earthen vessel that must be broken. That must be broken. And the trumpet sounds the alarm. See it? Now, doctrinally, let me give you some doctrine. Doctrinally, at the second coming of Christ, here's what's going to happen. Your vessel's going to break, and everybody's going to see your light. They're going to see you coming down that mountain with Jesus Christ, and they're going to see your light like His light. In thy light we shall see light, and you're going to shine like Jesus Christ. You're coming back from the judgment seat of Christ. You have a glorified body now. And once He breaks this vessel, and the glorious liberty of the sons of God comes forth, that manifestation of the sons of God comes forth, you're going to be admired. And all them that believe in that day, right? You believe Jesus Christ. You try to live for Him. You've listened to the testimony He gave you. Guess what? When this vessel breaks, this robe of flesh shall drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize. And you'll be coming back down down that mountain with a light that is just going to knock everybody's socks off. But go to 2 Corinthians. We're going to go home on 2 Corinthians 4. Let's talk about some inspiration here. I'm just going to read this and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians 4. But before that time, brethren, guess what? You want to be a light today? You want to let that light shine today? You must be broken. You must be willing to be broken, to let that light shine so you could sound the alarm and point other people to the Word of God. What did they cry? The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. They pointed people to the sword of their captain. You know what you're supposed to be pointing people to? When you allow yourself to be broken and let that light shine, you're supposed to lift up your voice like a trumpet and point people not to your church, not to your doctrine, but point people to the Word of God, the light that He's given you. And in 2 Corinthians 4, the Lord gives us the admonition. He says it right there in verse 5, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Let's Let's be broken, point people to the Word of God, and sound the alarm. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for everyone's kind attention, Lord. Thank you for this Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for these truths and the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. I pray your people got something out of this, Lord, an exhortation, some doctrine. Maybe just, Lord, more appreciation for this book and the rich pictures it holds. May you make us better soldiers, Lord, better better warriors, better just Christians, Lord, that we might stay in the place of blessing and not be judged by you. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.